There are Old Testament promises concerning the Messiah that he would be a divine person, that he would have the attributes and the characteristics of Godhood. He would be almighty to redeem, and he would be an infinite person. And then the reality that God's Son should be worshipped. And of course, our Lord Jesus accepted the worship of men. Now, if he is but a created being, that should not be the case. Thank you for joining with us here on Let the Bible Speak today. And on this week that leads us into the month of March, we're coming to a whole new series on cults. As you may know, last summer in our church, here in the Free Presbyterian Church in Cloverdale, British Columbia, that we had a series on the cults exposing the Seventh-day Adventists, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, Roman Catholicism, Islam, uh, Baha'i Faith, and a good number of these cults that we sought to uh, compare side by side with true Christianity. Well, we want to air these on the program, and I trust that you will stay tuned with us as we bring to you today what was our introductory message on the Nicene Creed. And uh, we were looking at John's Gospel, chapter 1, how that Jesus is the Word, and the Word is God. And uh, we looked at that uh, very important Greek word that was used very effectively by the Trinitarians, and it's the word homoousius, which equals the essential nature of the Father being the very exact same essential nature of the Son. And so today we'll be looking at these on our program. The Nicene Creed, well, that's uh, one of the historic creeds upon which we take our stand, and it was really defending the whole need of the Trinity, and we'll be getting into that in our message here today on Let the Bible Speak. So I trust you'll stay tuned with us today and through uh, these weeks to come as we air these messages on the cults. And our hymn today is Win the Lost. That is our uh, hymn for today, and we'll be airing that as well. We don't have a question answer today, but uh, we'll be getting right into the message. And I trust you'll stay tuned with us here at Let the Bible Speak. Now, at the end of the program, we'll be giving you all the details, how you may be in touch with us here, our phone number, website, www.cloverdealfpc.ca. And of course, you can uh, go to our website and look at our archived sermons, and there you will find uh, many of these messages. So may the Lord draw near, minister to your heart today, and greatly bless you. And if we can be of any personal help, of course, we want to uh, be of help to you. We have magazine CDs available, and uh, we want to minister to you one-to-one. -one. So thank you for being on the program today. Stay tuned with us right through as we look at the Nicene Creed, the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we come to our message and song, Win the Lost at Any Cost. As we look around us, 
On page five of this little booklet, it states the growth of various religions. And it does some data right up to the year 2000. And it shows you the rapid growth of a number of religions. One very dramatic one is the Muslim faith. In the, in the year 1950, there were approximately 370 million Muslims in the world. And in the year 2000, it was 1.3 billion. And so you can see that that is phenomenal growth. And the data that is given for each of these major religions is really exponential growth. Uh, there's only one or two that seem to be in some trouble with their membership. And, of course, there is the rise of many cults, those that are just branches and breakaway groups that uh, have their own axe to grind, and each one of these express their opposition to the eternal deity of the Lord Jesus. And the mark of a cult, uh, for the most part, is that they deny the Trinity and they do not believe in the full Godhead of our Lord Jesus. Now, many times you will meet people when they say, well, we don't believe in the Trinity because it's not found in the Bible. Well, let me give you a list of very sound words that are not in the Bible. Practical, um, Mormon, Catholic, Protestant, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Anglican, deity. It's not a Bible word. Substitution, impeccability, and yet we believe that our Lord Jesus is impeccable or sinless. And many like terms uh, which we use to define and defend the gospel that we preach are not actual words taken out of the Bible, but they are terms that are used to define the meaning of a particular truth. Now, the word Trinity has a very strong biblical basis. The very earliest revelation of God in Genesis chapter 1, you have the name God Elohim, and the I am ending means it's plural, or you could say in the beginning, gods. And yet in the book of Deuteronomy, we are told that a Lord our God is one Lord. And you have this revelation of the person of God. He is plural, and yet he is one. There are times when the pronoun, uh, God says, let us make man in our image. And there is this obvious conversation between the persons of the Godhood. And there is a discussion, let us make man. And so the Bible is filled with information about the Trinitarian nature or the plural nature of the Godhead. There are Old Testament promises concerning the Messiah that he would be a divine person, that he would have the attributes and the characteristics of Godhood. He would be almighty to redeem, and he would be an infinite person. And then the reality that God's Son should be worshipped. And of course, our Lord Jesus accepted the worship of men. Now, if he is but a created being, that should not be the case. If he is but a created uh, individual, 
whether he's created at his incarnation or created at a pre uh, time prior to that, uh, he is uh, a, a creature of time, uh, then we should not be worshiping a creature. But the Lord Jesus accepted and invited the worship of men. Then there is that great statement of our Lord when he said, I and my Father are one, for which they were about to stone him because he was making himself God. And so those around, the Jews around him, understood that he was referring to deity, to Godhood. And that was the claim of the Lord Jesus. He also made other claims that just as the Father had life in himself, so the Son hath life in himself. He, John chapter 5 is replete with such statements. And if you're ever looking for a chapter to defend the attributes of Christ, that they're divine, certainly John chapter 5 is an important one. And then there is the baptismal formula, where you have the three persons named that were to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. There is also the benediction formula, the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Now, throughout the early church, after the days of the apostles, our Lord Jesus was worshipped by the early Christians. And you can think of them in the catacombs in Rome and around the Mediterranean world. They worshipped in the name of Jesus. And of course, many of them paid the ultimate price of their own lives because they would not transfer that worship to the emperor of Rome, Caesar. And many went to the amphitheaters to their death because they would worship one called Jesus Christ, but they refused to give that worship uh, to a Roman emperor. And for a number of years, right up to about the year 300, uh, that was the state of things for early Christians until persecution changed. And in the year 311, Constantine, the emperor, well, if he himself didn't profess Christianity, he determined that the Roman Empire was going to be a Christian empire. And he favored Christians and promoted Christianity. Uh, so thereby, the realm or the era of persecution came to an end, and there came relative peace and opportunity uh, for Christians to more publicly declare their faith in the Lord. Persecution being over, purity became a problem because masses of people claimed to be Christian. And they came with their idols, and they came with their old ways, and they came with their ideas and doctrines. And there arose a heresy called Arianism. Its founder, or its main promoter, was a man called Arius, who was a presbyter in Alexandria in North Egypt. And he very vigorously purported and propounded this doctrine of Arianism. Now, the main issue at stake was whether the Word of God, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ, was co-eternal with God. 
The Aryan motto became, and I want to quote this little motto, there was when he was not. And the Aryan foundation really meant that there was a time when our Lord Jesus began to be. Now, to be very clear, they did not say that he began to be at the incarnation when he was born of Mary. They taught that he was the first of created beings, that he was before the creation of man, the creation of the world, that God created his son at some point of time. And that before God created anything material, God created his son. And in that sense, the Lord Jesus is God's first in creation. Now, that gave priority to the Lord Jesus. It gave some preeminence to him, but it robbed him of his co-eternal nature with the Father. The bishop of Alexander at that time was a man, Alexandria, was a man called Alexander. Hence my faux pas here. That uh, he was the bishop and he listened to Arius and he banned him and his teachings from his domain. And he was exiled, banished. Now, the common people, they were very supportive of Arius, and they began to protest in the streets of the city of Alexandria. There were other bishops all around, and they supported Arius, and this became a growing division within the early church. Now remember that Constantine had declared himself at least to be in favor of Christianity, but also to be head of Christianity and the church. And so what he did to settle this dispute between Arians and Trinitarians is to call a council. It was the first universal or ecumenical council ever to be called in the history of Christianity. It was in the year 325 AD, and it was held in the area of Nicaea and became known as the Council of Nice or Nicaea. If you ever look it up on a map, the place Nicaea is now called Isnik, and archaeologists tell us that the actual place where these met is at the bottom of the lake of Isnik. So if you go looking for the actual place where they met, uh, you'll have great difficulty in finding it. But Constantine, to encourage wide representation, he covered all expenses for bishops to come from various locations. And a total of 318 attended this council of Nicaea. Now, many of these they bore the marks of persecution and suffering. They had just come through the attempts by other Roman emperors to destroy them, persecute them, banish them, exile them. And here they were for the very first time, coming together in freedom. Their expenses were being covered. They were able to travel across the Mediterranean, by land, however they would come, and they congregated in Nicaea. 
Now, the historian Eusebius, who was present at that time, he described the scene. And I want to take time just for us to grasp the picture of this great council of Christian men. Now, there were some differences in how they looked at things, but they were serious about what they were doing. Eusebius says they were gathered the most distinguished ministers of God from the many churches in Europe, Libya, Asia, a single house of prayers, if it were enlarged by God, sheltered Syrians and Cilicians, Phoenicians, and Arab delegates from Palestine and from Egypt, Thebans, Libyans, together with those from Mesopotamia. There was also a Persian bishop, and a Scythian was not lacking. Pontus, Galatia, Pamphylia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Phrygia sent their most outstanding bishops, jointly with those from the remotest areas of Thrace, Macedonia, Achaira, and Epirus. Even from Spain, there was a man of great fame, a man called Hosseus of Cordova. He sat as a member of the great assembly. The bishop of the imperial city, Rome, could not attend due to his great age, but he was represented by his presbyters. Constantine is the first ruler of all time to have gathered such a garland in the bond of peace and to have presented it to his Savior as an offering of gratitude for the victories he had won over all his enemies. Well, this man Eusebius, the historian, he was very pro-Constantine. And there's a lot of things that he wrote about Constantine that you can take with a pinch of salt because he really favored him and glossed over a lot of his faults. But Constantine did preside over the Council of Nicaea. And they began discussing various matters of business like baptism, what standards you have for catechumens. And they also dealt with another thorny issue and that is people who were lapsed Christians, who during the era of persecution had denounced Christianity and in some way or other paid worship to the emperor. And then when the persecution was over, they wanted back into the church again. And this became a very difficult task. What to do with those whose faith for a time had lapsed? And then they came to the issue of Arianism. Now, there were only a few of the 318 who held Arian views that were in that council. However, these few were so convinced of their doctrine that they thought that it would only take a preliminary presentation, they would win the day, they would have the support of all the council, and they would end in triumph. Well, it didn't turn out that way. Arius himself, who was the main propagator of this doctrine, he had been deposed by Alexander of Alexandria. He could not attend. And so his assistant, a man called Eusebius of Nicomedia, a different Eusebius from the historian we talked of, and he was the main representative or speaker at this council. When he began to speak, and when they began to grasp the doctrines or the views of Christ that he was propounding, there was absolute anger in the council. His script was snatched and torn and stomped under feet. 
And there was no possibility that these false doctrines of Arianism were going to be promoted, received, or compromised with in any way in that council. Now, in the final rejection of Arianism, the Nicene Creed was drafted. Seeking for the stray lamb that was lost in dark and cold. Tender hands of kindness raised him from the ground. Now the little lost one had been listening to Let the Bible Speak, and our theme these weeks are the cults versus Christ. The need in the midst of religious confusion is to turn to the Bible doctrine of justification by faith alone. This is the great gospel doctrine. Martin Luther is credited with the statement that the standing or falling doctrine of the Christian church is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. This has been a litmus test ever since for the church which claims to present the gospel. Any church which would seek to smother over, to any degree, the truth of justification by faith alone, with its institutional rites, ceremonies, or clerical prowess, cannot be considered to be the true church of Jesus Christ on earth. The gospel message is that sin brings guilt to the sinner's soul. Jesus Christ offered himself on the cross to pay for our guilt. His death and his righteousness transferred to man's account is the only grounds of hope a sinner may have for eternal life. The gospel message is that Christ offered a one-time, all-sufficient sacrifice as payment for sin. To take away from that is not the gospel, and to add to that, is also not the gospel. Justification is an act of God's free grace, and man cannot offer any payment to God because he is bankrupt. He is no currency to pay the debt of his own sin. All his sins are pure guilt, and all his best efforts are yet rags of self-righteousness. The sinner's only hope is the payment of God's Son at Calvary. By trusting in that offering for sin, which God accepted as full payment, we are justified freely from all things. Romans 5.1 Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In our examination of the cults, we must keep this doctrine in mind. 
Many have turned away from the biblical and Protestant view of salvation by faith alone in the single payment of Christ for sin. Many want to make salvation a process which over time makes men right with God. To such, sin is a mere moral lapse, and the term guilt is not understood. Therefore, the offense of sin to the justice of God is not understood. It has been pointed out by historians and theologians that in any revival of the church there has been a rediscovery and a new emphasis on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. May the Lord lead us all back to the central doctrine of the gospel and bring us back to the way of peace with God through faith alone in the death and righteousness of his Son. The Shorter Catechism tells us that justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. The proof text for that is Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You can send for our free booklet, World Religions Made Easy, a ready reference guide with 64 pages to guide you through the maze of various religions. And it has a special 15-page pull-out section on Jesus Christ as the only way to the Father. You can look for this on our website at cloverdealfpc.ca and we'll gladly send you this 64-page booklet in the mail for just $5. So be in touch with us here. You can call us, write us, phone us, email us, or go through our website, cloverdealefpc.ca. The number is 604-576-1091. Thank you for joining with us here on the program today. Stay tuned with us. May the Lord bless you richly. Thank you for listening to our Let the Bible Speak broadcast. This is Ian Golliher. You are listening to Let the Bible Speak, the radio broadcast of the Free Presbyterian Church in Canada. This is Pastor Ian Golliher. If you missed part of today's program or would like to hear it again, you can find it archived by program date on our website. Just go to www.ltbs.ca, CA for Canada. There you can read my blog, find my Bible study notes, audio and video sermons, as well as helpful articles. Or you can go to our podcast on iTunes. We're on the air Sundays at 9.30 a.m. for our full church broadcast and Monday to Friday, 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. on this station to bring you the gospel from our free Presbyterian church here in Cloverdale. We also invite you to our church services on Sundays, 10.30 and 6 p.m. Through our website, you can listen and view to our online services at 10.30 and 6 p.m. Make it your Sunday worship. Click on the Live Now button on the homepage of our website. Or if you would like to talk with me one-on-one -on -one as a pastor, please give me a call. The phone number is 604-897-2040. The mailing address is 187 
9058 Avenue, Surrey, BC, V3S1M6. We're located just two blocks north of Number 10 Highway on 188th Street. Our website again is ltbs.ca. You can join us Monday to Friday, 5 a.m., 5 p.m. here on the station as we let the Bible speak.